1 Corinthians 10, 23 to 11, verse 1. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, precious Lord, wonderful Savior, we worship you this morning. Everything that's been made, everything we can think of, everything that we can imagine comes from you. We thank you for your love, Jesus, for the sacrifice you made while we were still sinners. Dear Lord, please forgive us for falling short in our words, in our deeds, and in our thoughts. Regarding the word that we've read this morning, I pray that you teach us to use our freedoms properly, that we learn and practice imitating you, Jesus that we don't use the prevailing culture as a standard for conduct, but that we look up to you. I pray that you guide Tommy as he preaches the word, that he follows your lead, neither adding nor subtracting from your message. Amen. Holy Spirit, teach us that we should learn how to practice what we've heard today. I also ask that you remove distractions from our minds and that we remember that what we hear isn't just for this moment, but for the rest of our lives. Mm. Today is Mother's Day, and so we thank you, Heavenly Father, for our mothers. We acknowledge and appreciate the love they've shown us, and we celebrate them. While not all our mothers are here with us, and while we may not all enjoy relationships with them, we thank you because you've placed people in our lives 
who played the role of mothers for us. Mm. And so for those who grieve because their mothers are gone, we ask that you comfort them. And for those who are estranged, Lord, I ask for reconciliation. Finally, I want to pray for the students who are graduating. Lord, I thank you for a long journey that has ended for them and a new one that's about to begin. Lord, I ask that you grant them insight into the next phase of their lives and that even as they move away from here or wherever they go, that you be with them and they don't lose that connection with you. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Good morning, Mercy House. We are very glad that you are with us here this morning on Mother's Day. Can we just give a round of love and praise for our mothers? I want to make sure that you moms feel especially loved and appreciated today. Um, there's a lot that I could say about motherhood as it relates to the gospel. There's a lot of things that God would want to say about motherhood as it relates to the gospel. So I'm just going to hold off for a moment, and I'm going to do that a little bit later through the sermon this morning. But God has just been so sovereign over the selection of 1 Corinthians for this spring sermon series. It's been amazing to see how the text has been perfectly divided throughout the weeks uh, to be able to fit so beautifully into the practical events of our lives, the, some of the challenges that we as a church are going through, uh, but then even into these Hallmark uh, holidays. So this text specifically is perfect for Mother's Day, and I hope you moms are ministered to by it. Um, so to our mothers out there who are listening on the podcast or who are in the room as uh, representative of Mercy House, we just want to say thank you. Uh, we love you guys. We, we want to thank you for raising up uh, our children and our brothers and sisters our, uh, to, to be followers of Jesus and this next generation of saints in Christ. So thank you. And like Freca was mentioning in the prayer, we know that Mother's Day isn't all sweet roses for everybody, that there are many, many, many reasons why today might be a hard day for you. And so it might be because you've lost a mother, it might be because you're in a broken relationship with your mother, maybe you have no mother, maybe you long to be a mother yourself, or maybe you're a mother in a family dynamic that's just really broken, or maybe this morning as you're being encouraged by everybody around you and built up, you're being humbled, uh, maybe reflecting on some of the failures and shortcomings of motherhood which are weighing on you this morning. And so we know that today can be hard. And so just know, please, that myself and the elders of this church, the deacons of this church, the staff of this church, we've all been praying for all of the women in our church family this weekend, specifically that you'd be able to experience the joy, the affection, the peace, and the tender loving kindness of Christ as you navigate this Mother's Day. So turning to the text, last week we worked through the beginning and the middle of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And Paul does a lot of setup in these passages to connect the Corinthians with their ancestors, the Israelites. And he does this because the Corinthians, they have a worship problem. And when you're a church and your sole purpose for existing is to worship and glorify God, like that's a real problem that you actually have to deal with. And for the Corinthians, this worship problem that manifested itself in a lot of other problems as well. So the Corinthians were struggling to remain faithful to God. They're struggling with idolatry. They're struggling in sexual sin. They're struggling in covetousness and grumbling. I mean, this is what the first 10 chapters of the book of 1 Corinthians is addressing. And Paul points out, uh, both with kindness and severity, that, hey, your fathers, the holy people of Israel, they struggled in the same things that you are. 
which is the kindness. It's, it's an encouragement to the Corinthians that they're not alone, but it's also something for them that's not unique or strange, that's happening to them, something that, that, that their forefathers also struggled with. But then there's also a severity to his message as well. And so what he's reminding the Corinthians is that your fathers who struggled in the same ways that you are, they were overthrown in the wilderness. They didn't get to enter into the promised land. So this is a sobering moment for the Corinthians. And Paul's main purpose, I think, as you read through verses 1 through 22, is to wake the Corinthians up a little bit. He's not trying to terrify them and make them feel insecure in their salvation in Christ. But as we talked about last week, what he's trying to do is to stress the importance of continuing to fight the good fight of faith and to continue remaining faithful to God. And doing so, as we looked at chapter, uh, the beginning of chapter 10, uh, is through obedience to God's word, so what God's calling us to do, but then also wholehearted worship of God. The Corinthians, in their straying like Israel, uh, they were also not obeying God's word, which is made evident in their idolatry and their sexual sin, their covetousness, and their grumbling. But they're also not worshiping God with their whole hearts, as evident by their participation in the cultural, uh, culturally acceptable forms of worship of other things and the idolatry that's happening in the city. So these are the two main areas of brokenness that Paul addresses. And ultimately, Paul stresses that the way that we remain faithful, so the way that we remain in obedience of our actions and the worship of our hearts is through the faithfulness of God. So it's not in our own ability to stand, but in God's grace and His love and power working through us by relying on God to be our strength and relying on God to miraculously work within us. And when we're tempted to stray or to sin, to not think that the Christian thing is just to to find the strength to endure until that temptation subsides, but to flee. That's the heart of the passage from last week. To run, to fly, and not merely away from temptation and sin, but more importantly, to Christ himself, to our Savior who is the defeater of that sin, of that temptation, and who has conquered our flesh and then empowers us by the power of the Spirit of God who lives inside of us to remain faithful to God. And so this morning, Paul closes out these few chapters of discussion on how to navigate the world and the culture uh, that we live in in light of the gospel. And he's going to round off his teaching on how the Corinthians ought to approach eating food that's mingled with a culture of idol worship, which we'll get to in a minute. And and while some of these specifics seem like they could be really distant, what we're going to find are some principles that are incredibly helpful for us today. Now, first, I want to pray. So let's let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I I submit myself to you during this time. And my thoughts and my words and my affections, God, I pray that your word would go forth and that you would bring miraculous healing and transformation to your people here this morning. God, your word is powerful. Your word is incredibly beautiful. Help us to yield our hearts and our minds to it and let it captivate our attention and imagination for these next 30 minutes. God, I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. This morning, as we look at the passage together, I want to take note of what I think are kind of four movements that Paul works through in this section of his letter to the Corinthians. And so these four movements are starting with a mentality, so he gives us a way that we ought to think. He works through some actions, some of the ways that we ought to live. He works then through some rationale, both for that mentality and for that action. And then finally, we end with a principle, what these things actually tell us about God and us. 
And so the truth target this morning, if you're a note taker, this is one thing, if you just take nothing else away, know that God is glorified when we live for the good of others. God is glorified when we live for the good of others. So being glorified, God is glorified, meaning he's made much of, he's brought praise, is made to be seen in his true, spectacular, awesome nature when we live not just for the needs of ourselves, but for the good of others. Starting in verse 23 in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. As Paul shifts here, well, let me read the passage before we actually jump into it. Verse 23, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. So Paul here shifts from the previous section in talking about uh, a healthy mentality in relation to God. Uh, That is that we ought to be in the mindset that God is completely the one who is sustaining us. Like He's the one that's empowering us to remain faithful to him and remain in obedience to him and, and worship of him. And then God redirects the conversation into kind of a horizontal plane. And he addresses what our mentality ought to be in relation to the other people around us, both in the church and also in the world. So here in verse 23, Paul brings back the quote, which was used earlier in chapter 6, which we talked a lot about, uh, which is most likely, as a reminder, a direct quotation uh, of the Corinthians themselves. He says, all things are lawful. And as a reminder... Uh, what the Corinthians meant when they said this was that we can do whatever we want, which is theologically true as Christians. And we talked about this. So we are, as Christians, and they were, as Christians, free from the law. So their sins, their past, present, and future sins were completely paid for by Jesus' death on the cross. They themselves had been washed clean. They were made right before God. But the Corinthians, they flaunted this uh, this freedom and liberty uh, with an air of pride and sinfulness that Paul has, has trying to been, be, be working through in this letter and help them kind of wring out of themselves. So mind you, this phrase was so popular, it was such a popular slogan in the Corinthian church that it would have been like their church tagline. They would have been called like Corinth Baptist, all things are lawful. <laughs> Like that, that's how they would have understood it. Or at the very least, it would have been like one of their trending hashtags. They would say something like, just went out for drinks at the new bar, got a little tipsy, hashtag all things are lawful. Right? Like that's what they, how they used it. They would say, hey, just had some delicious food at Poseidon's temple. Weird worship service, but great food. Hashtag all things are lawful. Their understanding of their freedom in Christ was theologically, technically correct, but practically very harmful to themselves and others. What Paul is trying to do in these two verses is to help frame a gospel mentality for the Corinthians to use their new freedom in Christ. So look at these verses again, verse 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his good, but the good of his neighbor. And just a reminder, if you don't have a Bible, there are a bunch under you, so I encourage you to, to look at this for yourself and don't just, to, don't, don't just take my word for it. The mentality here that Paul is, is trying to give them is, yes, we have freedom and liberty, but the correct gospel mindset is not to use these for our own good, but for the good of others, to be helpful to others and to build one another up. And so the heart of a healthy Christian mentality toward life, toward ministry, toward work, toward school, is one where we are not seeking our own good, but the good of others. The good of others. 
Mercy House, this is a pleasant thing to say. We might even believe that it's the right Christian mindset that we ought to have. But let's not be naive and think for a second that this is normal or natural as a human disposition or that this is a normal cultural narrative here in America. We are prone to seek out our own interests, to care for ourselves and make decisions that benefit us, regardless of how they impact other people. And psychologists and sociologists and biologists would say that this is in fact a part of what makes us thrive as a species. Having an innate human mindset that's geared towards self-preservation and survival. It's what it means to be a human and continue to thrive. This is not the way that God designed us to live. Humans made in the image of God are not designed to operate with a mentality of exclusive self-interest and self-preservation, where the self is prioritized over everybody else. We see this in the way that God, through His Word, shepherds and corrects us as His people over and over again. So as you look through the Bible, this is what we see. In the context to love, the way that we ought to love each other, and the way that God designed us to love one another, is really to be void of self-interest. In a few weeks, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We're, we're moving along um, through the whole letter, but in chapter 13, you've probably heard this if you've been to a wedding. Verse 4, love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy or boast, it is not arrogant or rude, it does not insist on its own way, it is not irritable or resentful. This is not just a text for married people or two people who are about to commit their lives together for the, for the rest of their days. Even if it is the most popular wedding sermon text, this is for the entire church. And so that's what we'll see in a few weeks um, as, as we look at chapter 13, that all of us as followers of Christ are called as Christians to love one another in this way. This is the godly standard of love that Jesus himself exhibits and that he calls us into. But it's not just how we ought to love one another, but even to exist practically within a community in the way that God designed us to exist in community is to have a certain disposition toward others around us. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, Paul says this to them. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And Paul's not advocating that we should not care at all about ourselves. Like, by all means, take care of yourself. Like, shower and groom and, like, take care of yourself. Paul isn't saying to neglect your own needs or have zero self-interest, but that the interests of others ought to occupy your headspace and then be prioritized over your own. That's what it means to count someone more significant than yourself. It's pretty radical. So to live this out, it means that the needs and interests of others actually trump our own when those two things are at odds or in conflict with one another. And then to yield to the interests of others over our own. Being uh, something that isn't natural to us, this is something that we must be trained up in. When our girls were younger, uh, Chloe and Davy, I would perform these little tests on them, like little training grounds for them. And so what I would do is if they were eating a snack or having a treat, I'd wait until they were on their last bite or on their last jelly bean, and I'd ask them, hey, can I have that? Right? It would be like this little test. And, and I was just curious to see how they would respond. Like, hey, where's your heart at at age two or three? 
And I had no expectation that they would actually share their last jelly bean with me. And I remember my oldest, who's six now, I, I, I remember I'd ask her, Chloe, um, and, and she'd like hold up her jelly bean, and then she'd like look in the bag and realize there's no more, and then look at me, and look at the jelly bean, and look at the bag, look at the jelly bean, and look at me. Like, her, her gears were turning in that moment, and the gears are grinding, right? And she's, she's doing like this mental math. She's like, okay, this is the last one. There are no other ones in this bag. And if I give it to daddy, I'm not going to have any more to eat. And of course, I want it because it's delicious, but daddy also wants it. And she's like, ah, right? And it's like cute to see that conflict in her head. And on several occasions, both of my girls passed this test. Like, I, I was full of joy. They gave up their last snack or last treat for me. And this wasn't something that was like out of obedience. I didn't command them to give me their last bite. I simply asked them for it, and I saw them kind of weigh out the cost. They, they, they weighed my interest against their own interests, and beautifully, they selflessly reached out and offered their last little treat, their last little bite of ice cream. And I grabbed it, and I ate it. And then I would go into the pantry, and I'd give them a whole handful of snacks and treats just to confirm and, and, and affirm their generosity and to let them know how, how excited and joyful I was to see them being so selfless as little children. And to this day, our girls share their treats and their snacks like it's their job. And I think that they, they, they were able to learn through those weird experiments that their daddy would do for them that, that, that the joy and, and the gener- of generosity and learning that it is more blessed than it is to receive. And so they were able to do that and kind of take something from that. Um, and to this day, they continue to share and literally offer up their last bite because of the joy of generosity. Now, I wasn't being sadistic. I don't think I was. I was trying to teach them a lesson through this experience. And and this is all to say that selflessness and looking out for the interests of others might not come naturally to us, but it is something that we can train ourselves to do, something that we can learn to do. And this is what Paul is exhorting the, the, the Christians in Corinth to do. He's trying to teach them up and raise them up to be selfless. Before we categorize this mentality as kind of the next spiritual level of maturity, and it's only for those who have a little bit of extra time and energy to work on some advanced Christian disciplines, consider that God doesn't just establish this mentality of living for the good of others as kind of like this bonus discipline, but as a duty, as a responsibility for those who follow Christ. He communicates this in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 15. And this is what he says in his letter to them. Verse 1, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. This is the mentality that we must have in order to rightly interact with our freedoms and our liberties in Christ. Corinth did not have this mentality. And so their freedom led to self-destructive behavior as they focused their freedoms on their own self-interest. And their focus of their own needs and their own success and what was best for them, like it led them to idolatry, to sexual sin, to coveting what others had, to, to being greedy for personal gain. And then when they didn't get any of that, they would grumble in disappointment. And so, so Paul exhorts the Corinthians. He says, my beloved brothers, brothers and sisters, 
endeavor to use and leverage your freedom to be helpful to other people, to build other people up, to live for the good of other people, not just for yourself. What does this look like practically for the Corinthians? What, What actions does this mentality lead to? Well, look at verses 25 and 26. Paul says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And so the situation, to remind you, we talked about this in chapter 8, when food is being sacrificed to idols in the city, three things would happen to that meat. So the first thing is that it was uh, burned up or just completely incinerated in the offering, which is a huge waste of meat, but there you go. Whatever was left over would then be eaten during uh, the idol worship ceremony or the idol worship service. So that's the second thing that happened. And then if there's anything left over, that meat that wasn't burned or wasn't eaten would go to the marketplace where anyone would be able to purchase it. And the food in the marketplace, unlike today, was not labeled well. So today you go to the grocery store and you see things like gluten-free, dairy-free, nut-free, vegan, non-GMO, halal, kosher, like whole three, all those things. Back then it was just piles of meat and you would go there, and it would be like a butcher shop, and you would just grab it and go. And so in this situation, it was clear that some people were a little worried about the origin of the meat. Like, was it from Bob's free-range farm, or was it uh, sacrificed earlier that day on the altar of Aphrodite? And Paul gives them license to use their freedom here. And he's saying, you know that slogan that you guys love so much, like hashtag all things are lawful? Well, go wild. That's what he means in verse 25. He says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Paul is saying, experience freedom and liberty to eat whatever is at the market, not worrying about the food tainting you or that act condemning you or even affecting you in any spiritual way whatsoever, which is what we talked about in chapter 8. He says, don't feel anxious. Don't feel the need to investigate it. Like, just have at it. Be free. All things are lawful. When the only person that's being affected is you, when there are no negative consequences to eating this meat, meaning that like there's no discernible difference between this meat and another meat, and which was true for them, like there was no no discernible difference in health, then just load up and go wild. And so the action, based on the mindset, is since there's no one else and to, to have interests weighed against. There, there's no other needs of other people to prioritize over your own um, than experience freedom in Christ. And don't feel guilty about it. question is why? We'll look at again at 25 and 26. Paul says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience for, which is another word like because, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So what Paul is saying that all things are God's. All things belong to God. This sentiment is communicated in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 14. It says, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. What that means is that my cell phone is God's. Now, this tablet that I'm reading off of is God's. This Bible that I'm using is God's. Which means that for whatever purpose I use this tablet for, whether I use it for good, like preaching a sermon, or for evil, it doesn't change the fact that it's God's. And it doesn't change the physical or spiritual composition of this tablet. It's just the tablet. And some people in Corinth were concerned that meat that was being offered up and sacrificed to idols was somehow being like tainted. 
that, that something was happening that kind of gave it some bad vibes, and those bad vibes would affect the Christians as they ate it. And Paul's saying, that's ridiculous. Like, there's no such thing as bad juju. That's not like a real thing. In 2008, I got to travel to Uganda in Africa, and we worked with an NGO called Come Let's Dance. And while we were there, uh, we were taken to this mountain that had a lot of cultural significance in the local church. During the early and mid-2000s, if you didn't know this, uh, a terrorist war criminal named Joseph Kony uh, led the Lord's Resistance Army, and he abducted tens of thousands of children and, and, and murdered hundreds of thousands of Af Africans. And this mountain specifically that they took us to uh, was a place that was a stronghold for them. It, it was a place where um, they held the captives and they would execute a lot of them. And it was pretty horrific. When we were there, we would see in the ground uh, marks in the stone where machetes had, had struck through the victims. And so the story uh, that we were told is that this uh, mountain was a really evil, demonic stronghold. Even after the LRA left the area, local people would be scared to go there. They'd be terrified of that area because it had, it had been this literal altar of human sacrifice. The pretty dark, evil stuff that happened there. A local pastor heard about this, and I think he felt similarly to Paul. He was thinking, man, all things belong to God, and everything in the world belongs to God, including that mountain there. And so what he did was he organized a church service on top of this mountain. And his church was a little skeptical, a little nervous to go, to say the least, but the pastor wanted to reclaim this mountain, and he wanted to show that the people had nothing to fear. And so the story goes that as the pastor is preaching, he noticed that the people were a little uneasy, right? They're standing around, they're like, oh, I can't believe we're here. <laughs> What's going to happen, right? And at the top of the mountain, there, there's this large area where, and this is like pretty graphic, but where the blood from the sacrifices would pool down. And Joseph Coney and his men, like they would bathe in that blood, and they, they would perform like mocking baptisms in that blood, and so this pastor, knowing that this was like a point of great tension and fear for the, for the crowd, uh, and a place that really had like the most bad juju, what he did was he went into that small pool that had been filled with rainwater, and he took a cup of water, and he drank it. He drank that water. I'm not making this up. Everyone there like recoiled in horror. They're like, what are you doing? Nothing happened to him. He continued to preach the gospel there. And from that day on, that mountain became a holy mountain, not because of anything that he did. And what the pastor was trying to communicate with his actions was that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That mountain was not Joseph Coney's mountain. It wasn't tainted because of the terrible things that had happened there. It was God's mountain. And it became a, a place within the local church of great worship and great spiritual revival in northern Uganda. This is one of the great freedoms that we have as Christians as we navigate the world. Now, this doesn't mean uh, that things that are damaging or destructive now become permissible since they just belong to God. Like, we can't say heroin is God's, so we're all free to indulge ourselves. Like, that's not what Paul is getting at here. Remember, Paul earlier says in chapter 6, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. But, I think this is a helpful reminder for us that if there is something that is helpful for us, if, it, if there's something that we're not going to be enslaved to or we won't be able to live without, 
If there are things that, that don't tear other people down, then we can participate and not feel guilty and enjoy. As a church, I think that we can spend a lot of time as Christians thinking about and focusing in on what can't we do as Christians? Like, oh, what can't we eat or what can't we drink? That it honestly might feel weird to be given this type of liberty, but here it is. And so the action that we see is to engage and enjoy creation without fear or anxiety. And the rationale behind that is that everything in the world belongs to God. Good things are blessings and gifts from our Father, which includes food, no matter what happened to that food ahead of time. If only things were this simple, right? Paul deals with the situation regarding the meat being sacrificed to idols on a personal level, as if you kind of lived in a vacuum, uh, but he offers another scenario that actually includes the conscience of other people. So look at verse 27 through 30 here. Paul says, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? Paul lays out a couple of new scenarios for the Corinthians here, and he's providing some really helpful, practical advice for them. Doesn't seem very practical to us because we don't live in the same context, but for them, it was really helpful. See, in this first scenario, someone invites you to dinner, and they put food down in front of you, and Paul says, same action as before, based on that mindset. Uh, eat whatever is set before you. Experience freedom. Since all things are God's, and because there's nothing that the people preparing that food, uh, there's nothing that they could do to change that reality. So even if people who were cooking in the kitchen, if they spent all of their time like praying over your food to their false gods, and they like tried to curse that food, I don't know why they would do this before serving you, but if they did, there's nothing that would change that food. Idols aren't real. Empty prayers to fake gods have no power. And so that bowl of stew is the same as it ever was which is God's food to sustain and nourish you. And so when that's put before you, eat up, is what Paul says. But, verse 28, if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you, and for the sake of conscience, I do not mean your conscience, but his. So now the scenario is different, because the person who is serving you is making it known that the food has been offered up in sacrifice. And so, in this case, Paul advises the Corinthians to not eat it. To not eat it. Not because of the food or the fact that it's been offered up in sacrifice. Remember, food is the same. No matter what happens to that food on a, on a spiritual level, like it's just food, it's all God's, it's for you to enjoy and for you to be nourished by. But for the sake of the person who informed you and for the sake of their conscience. What does Paul mean? Well, this second scenario reveals that the person who's offering the food to you has some preconceived notions re regarding food and your faith. And so culturally in Corinth, there was this sense, like people knew that Christians didn't participate in idol worship. That's a good sense that the culture would have. But they also expanded this beyond that. And they would say, well, they also wouldn't eat any of the meat that is sacrificed in these uh, worship services. And so what Paul is saying is, hey, instead of, like, correcting them, instead of trying to teach them about your Christian liberty that you have in Christ, which they would have no context or understanding of anyways because they're not Christians, so, like, he's saying, like, don't waste your breath. 
for their sake, just don't eat it. For their sake, don't let this be a stumbling block, which might confuse them or cause them to feel conflicted in their own conscience for giving you this food. This is all consistent with the mentality that Paul is trying to inject into the Corinthians, which is to put their needs, their good of the other people before your own. Even in minor, seemingly insignificant situations like this, if it means them benefiting, other people benefiting in some marginal, small way, then we ought to be willing to give up our freedoms and our liberty. One of the things that's implied in these verses is that we are living lives alongside believers and non-believers. Notice that it's an unbeliever who's asking the Christian Corinthian out to dinner. I think this is Paul acknowledging that's uh, something that the Corinthians are doing right. Uh, They're not just isolating themselves into a holy huddle in the corner. They're, They're not cutting themselves off from the world around them. They're living their lives in the world. And Paul is trying to shepherd them uh, to not be of the world as they are in the world. And what this means, what this whole mentality of selflessness means, is not just giving up our rights and putting the needs of our Christian brothers and sisters above our own, but of all people. This is where it gets even more radical. This is a call to missional living. And it's not just about meat being sacrificed to idols. This is a very specific and kind of a tiny example, but this mentality and these actions with this rationale points to a much broader principle. Look at these last verses, verse 31 to the end there. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And so the mentality that Paul is trying to give them, the gospel mentality, is living selflessly and for the good of others. And so just to recap, what this leads to is sometimes you either um, exercise liberty or sometimes you give up your liberty. And you're able to exercise liberty because all things are God's. You're able to enjoy and appreciate, but also you give up your liberty because the good of others is more important than you having your ability to exercise your own liberty. And so the larger principle here is Paul saying, do all things to the glory of God and to the good of others. That's what Paul is saying in these last verses. He's expanding the mindset beyond what's explicitly talked about in these previous verses. There are times when we will find ourselves in situations when we have to do some like theological and philosophical calculation, similar to what Chloe, my little daughter, was doing. She's looking at this little jelly belly. We might need to reference some of these scriptural algorithms and and think things through a little bit and say, okay, this person offered me a beer, which I am free in Christ to to enjoy and to consume, and they don't seem to think that Christians can't drink, but I know that my friend over here struggles with alcoholism, and I don't want to make them feel uncomfortable and out of place, so I'm actually just not going to exercise my liberty to have a beer Case done, closed, all right, no thanks to the beer, let's keep having a good time. Like sometimes you're going to do those calculations. And what, what Paul is saying is that we ought to be taking this approach of being what I would call like gospel thoughtful in all situations of our lives. Having the mentality of seeking the good of others and the needs of others over our own. That's what Paul means 
here in verse 31. He says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So yes, Paul starts with what we eat and drink, but expands it here. Whether you're talking about food or how you approach work or how you engage at school or how you spend your downtime, Paul calls the Corinthians and us to be thoughtful and methodical in our actions, to do things in ways that bring glory to God, that make much of Him, that honor Him in His godly virtues that define Him, but also in the ways that He has designed the world. Verse 32, right after that, says, Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. So again, there's no discrimination toward this type of mentality. We're not just reserving this for those who are fellow members of the church, other Christians, or even those who are just really nice to us or or those who we get along with. Paul, when he includes Jews and the Greeks and the church of God, that's him saying, everybody, no matter who I'm interacting with, this is the mentality that I have, and this is the mentality that you ought to also have. In verse 33, it says, Just as I try to please everyone in everything that I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. This gets to the why of we're doing this. This is getting to the why of Paul is doing this. Mercy House, we're not talking about good Christian living as if it's something that we ought to do just to make ourselves feel better and to placate ourselves. The reality is that the eternal souls of men and women are at stake. This isn't hold the door for someone else theology, right? This isn't just be kind by smiling to your neighbor theology. This is you, if you are a Christian, you have been rescued from drowning in the ocean. And the God who has rescued you is inviting you to rescue others who are drowning in the ocean, so if you want to use this, this image, like no good lifeguard is going to put their own needs and their own interests above other people who they are meant to be watching for. They're not saying, oh, let me just finish this sandwich real quick. I know you're struggling in the waves and you look like you're probably going to drown, but let me, just, let me just take care of myself first. No, there's a level of urgency here that Paul wants us to have in all of our interactions with all of the world. We're not putting the needs of others before our own so that we could be more likable or that we could be a nice person. We seek the good and the needs of others as a means to to give them the gospel, which then provides their ultimate good and also fulfills their ultimate eternal need. With this mentality, we we remove any stumbling blocks, anything that might get in the way of someone knowing Christ and experiencing God's gift of salvation. If if our reasoning for our selflessness is like Paul's, then we can easily suffer any momentary discomfort if it bears the eternal fruit of salvation in someone else's life. We're free to do that. And as we talk about suffering momentary discomforts for the good of others, I think that's a good segue into motherhood. That is the job description of mothers. So moms, you live this and you know this so uniquely and so beautifully. Your job requires selflessness from the moment of your child's conception. Because in that moment, your body is no longer your own personal domain. Like biologically, your body plays out the mentality that we are being called to try to emulate. Your, uh, your exclusive self-interest is no longer the default, but you have this baby inside of your body that you are taking care of. 
So think of this for a second. Those who are mothers, they have been made by God in the design of their bodies during pregnancy to display this gospel virtue of selflessness. Nothing in my biology as a man is selfless by default. I get hungry, so I got to eat a sandwich. I got to go to the bathroom. Uh, Like, I'm tired and I have to take a nap. Like, men are not designed to display this, but moms are. And that's the glory of moms. That's a mother's God-given, God-designed, God-purposed, God-imaging, glorious body that displays the gospel. And that's awesome. And that's just conception and then gestation and then birth. And then the baby actually gets birth and enters into the world. And I would say the true glory of a mother shines as moms selflessly nurture and care for and raise their babies. Continuing that day in and day out. Putting the needs of the child before the needs of themselves. And so mothers, happy Mother's Day. And thank you for all of us children and husbands. Honor your moms. And honor your wives today. Encourage them as they take on this impossible task. or the task that they've already accomplished. Affirm them as they carry out this God-given responsibility. And bless them. And lavish them. And above all, remind them that the work that they're doing is good work. And that the aim of their work, just like Paul and his spiritual parenting of Corinth and his spiritual parenting of unbelievers, is that they would be saved. That's the purpose and goal of pouring yourself out as mothers. Not to raise well-adjusted children or to give your children a nice life, but to raise disciples of Jesus who you will share joyful fellowship with for all of eternity. That's the end goal of good godly motherhood so if you are a christian and your mom is a christian take time today or this week to share with them what god's doing in your life that will be more encouraging them to them than than just giving them a card and some flowers although i encourage you to give them a card and give them some flowers as well but let them know what god is doing in your life and that will give them so much joy and remind them that all the times that they poured themselves out was worth it Paul ends this section with um, what, what is visually chapter 11, verse 1, but chapter and verse designations are relatively modern. And so this letter was one long text, um, and I do think that this verse really fits, kind of rounds out the sentiment of these previous verses that we've been reading. So Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. It's a bold statement to tell others to imitate you. And Paul's a pretty bold guy if you read any of his letters. He's not communicating here that he's perfect or has it all together, but he is inviting people to imitate him in the areas that he is imitating Christ. And what Paul is doing here is he's setting up a model for Christian discipleship within Christian community and not with official roles or titles. So whether you actually are a mother or you're not, there's this idea of imitation and being a role model that Paul is trying to instill in the church. And the implication is that within Corinth, people would eventually rise up as they imitate Paul, who's imitating Christ, to be people worth imitating themselves. That there would be men and women who are resolved to be more like Christ and to live lives of thoughtfulness and intentionality toward the gospel and be striving to be mature in Christ and to grow in knowledge of God through his word. 
And so Mercy House, I want to encourage you to imitate people within this community. Some of us don't have parents. Some of us don't have um, people that we can see as role models. Well, within the church, there are spiritual mothers and fathers, at least spiritual older brothers and older sisters who we ought to be imitating. It's partly why we have worship leaders here up on stage. So I want to encourage you to imitate them as they worship God with their voice and with all of their hearts. I want to encourage you to imitate greeters as they imitate Christ in the hospitality and the approachability of Christ as they say hi to you as you come into the door. Imitate our elders who serve the church by leading the church. And imitate our deacons who lead the church by serving the church. Imitate me as I spend this short chunk of time just treasuring and beholding the word of God. And imitate the mothers in the room. Imitate those who in this way of, of selflessly pouring themselves out for the interests and the good of their children's, that is worthy of imitating. So this whole text, I think, can be summed up in this way. This is the core idea, that God is glorified. He's made much of when we live for the good of others. This mentality of not living for our own good and living exclusively for the good of others, it's not natural, it's not normal. We talked about this. And it's not just hard for us to do. I would argue that it is impossible because it goes against the grain of our sinful and fleshy nature. The beautiful thing is that as Christians, we have been rescued out of this. In the gospel, we have seen how Christ gave up his self-interest for our interests. And on the cross, Jesus gave up his self-preservation in order to preserve us. And not just for a day, not just for a lifetime, but for all time, forever and ever. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. In communion, we remember how Jesus models the true selflessness that we're all called to live. He leads in it, and, and he calls us to imitate him in it, but we cannot be void of self-interest if we can't, uh, and we can't live selflessly and, and put the needs of others and the good of others before our, our own unless we know that God is the one who sees to all of our needs. That God is the one who zealously fights for our good so that we don't have to. That God is the one who cares about us so we can actually live carefree. Some of us need to know and hear that God is our ultimate protector and our ultimate advocate, which means that we don't have to spend our days being anxious and worried about protecting ourselves and advocating for ourselves. If we don't know these things in our hearts about how God is for us, then we cannot live truly selflessly in the ways that Paul is calling the Corinthians to do. This is something that God is continually trying to teach his people. This is a holy theme throughout all of Scripture. All of the major biblical characters are often paralyzed by fear in the face of danger. So when they're placed in situations where they couldn't protect themselves or take care of themselves— God, as their loving father and protective shepherd, reminds them over and over again that he would be with them and that he would be for them. And so I want to take this last, uh, these last moments this morning just to give you some scripture to encourage you. 
And to the moms who might be at the end of their ropes who are weary and exhausted and maybe not really encouraged by me saying, hey, just keep pouring yourself out and being selfless, a lot of moms might feel alone and unseen and fighting this fight by themselves and that they're not being fought for or advocated for. Those moms, I I hope, can hear the words of the Lord for his people who feel similarly. And for those of us, for the rest of us who aren't moms, the exhortation for us is the same, to use our freedom for the good of others. And if we're struggling to know how much God is actually for us, um, listen to these verses so that you would be able to be free to live for other people. So let me run through these for you. Just take a moment to listen and cherish and store these up in your heart. Moses, as he was called to take on Pharaoh, the king of the most powerful nation in the world, Exodus chapter 3, verse 11 through 12, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to, the, to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, and this is God, but I will be with you. Then Moses, in turn, encourages Joshua, and he's about to go into the promised land, which is filled with enemies who himself, Joshua himself, is worried about his own self-preservation. Verse 22 of Deuteronomy chapter 3, you shall not fear them, for it is the Lord your God who fights for you. And sometimes we need reminders, so God himself reminds Joshua in Joshua chapter 1 verse 9, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous, do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. David, this valiant war hero, military genius, experienced general, was also prone to fits of anxiety regarding his self-interest until he would take a minute to remember who actually fought for him. Psalm 27, verse 1, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? God says to Jeremiah, chapter 1, verse 8, Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. And as we see Mary, and she's about to be put into a precarious situation, a pregnancy before marriage, and who will undoubtedly face the anxieties of self-preservation, we see this in Luke chapter 1, verse 28. This is an angel speaking, and he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Mercy House, you are not alone. Do you see this theme throughout Scripture? God knows our fear and our insecurities, and He knows that there's a consistency. We tend to struggle and worry and and be anxious about these things, of of being by ourselves and having the world crush us and, and being scared of the unknown. And so this is why God over and over and over and over and over and over again. He tells his saints, I'm with you. I will never leave you. I will not forsake you. I'm not going to leave you as an orphan to figure it out and take care of yourself. I will deliver you. Don't be afraid. Don't be terrified. I am your salvation. I will fight for you. I will protect you. I will care for you like a mother cares for their child. Isaiah 66, verses 13 and 14. As one whom his mother comforts, so I, this is God speaking, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see, and your heart shall rejoice, and your bones shall flourish like the grass. And the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants. When we know that God is for us, 
and cares for us and is with us, that's when we're able to be truly, truly free in Christ. And when we are truly free, that's when we're able to glorify God by living our lives recklessly for the good of other people. Let's pray. God, you are a good father. In a world where we have lots of crummy examples of parents, maybe we have experienced this ourselves or see this in our friends' lives, we thank you that you are the perfect example of a parent. God, we confess that sometimes it is hard to live selflessly. Oftentimes it's hard. And God, we confess that sometimes we feel the need to take care of ourselves because we believe that if no one looks out for us, then we will flounder and we will die. God, help us to see these truths that you are with us and for us. Help us to experience closeness and relationship of you as our Father. And Lord, let that bring about a transformation in our hearts that allows us to live selflessly, completely selflessly for others. God, you are the ultimate example of this. As your son died on the cross and gave up his entire life for the good of others, there is no better example of this. And so as we take communion, God, help us to reflect on this and help us to respond in thankfulness and in worship of you. Lord, grow us as individuals, mature us to see beyond our own needs and our own interests. Help us as a community to be one that is marked with selfless love for one another. We thank you for your word, God. We treasure it. We love you, God. We thank you for our mothers. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.